Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen. For today's show, we are revisiting an interview that Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner did with Columbia Business School professor Bruce Greenwald. He's an excellent uh, expert on value investing. This conversation was from January. Uh, so we'll visit this in two parts, the first part today and the second part tomorrow. Hope you enjoy the interview. We're here at Motley Fool New York City headquarters with uh, Bruce Greenwald. Um, he is a Columbia Business School professor. We've interviewed him a number of times, a couple times at the Motley Fool. He's the author of Value Investing from, from Graham, Graham to Buffett and Beyond. <laughs> and the author of Competition Demystified, which I didn't know existed until I was doing a little bit more research this morning before you arrived, and I can't wait to read that book. You're also the head of research at First Eagle Funds. I was. You I'm, were. Okay. I'm now a senior advisor. Okay, got it. Now I, I did that half time, and that was about a year and a half ago. I so we up. were just talking off camera about so many interesting things. We should just have that. I've got a few questions right here on my iPhone, as I always have. Uh, but but let's start in with the the theme of the day, which is market overvaluation. How to think about it? Obviously, five years of incredible returns, preceded by five years of pretty oh, bad returns. And and uh, and where does that okay? So leave us overall. If you look at returns over the last fifteen years, they're not great. Hmm. But typically, if you look at valuation metrics, especially relative to earnings, you see this extraordinary disjunction between the current earnings multiples, which are not low, hmm. but they're not out of line with what we've seen in markets that have continued to go up for a considerable amount of time. Mm -hmm. And these 10-year price earnings ratios that are off the charts. Mm -hmm. And the obvious difference there is the level of profitability. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that it sort of hasn't permeated the political discourse because if you look in the United States at profit share of national income, it has basically gone from an average level of 8.5% mm -hmm. in pre-1990. Mm -hmm. to about 14.5% to 15% mm -hmm. today. And mm -hmm. it looks like that's an upward trend mm -hmm. that's not abating. Mm -hmm. So I think... And has that been pretty much stair-step up, a pretty steady... It's, it's steady then because profits always suffer mm -hmm. in a recession. Right. The, the, there's a step down. But okay. what's extraordinary about 2009 is the profit share goes down to basically 10, mm -hmm. which in a normal period would have been terrific. Whereas yeah. in 1990-91, the profit share goes down So we're down becoming more, more profitable as a collection of companies, industries, and across the U.S. economy. Right, and I'd say that trend, if anything, has accelerated in the last four or five mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And so the judgment you have to make about this market is, is it overvalued? Mm -hmm. Are we in a world of irrational exuberance again, where it's all going to come home to roost? Mm -hmm. Or, in fact, are these profit changes permanent? Mm -hmm. And I think, therefore, the useful thing for investors is to think about what it is that's driving profitability. And I think there, there are two forces. One is structural, I think, mm -hmm. and the other is evanescent, but I think you're going to be surprised by what the bad news consists of. So mm -hmm. why don't we talk about the Great. permanent uh, structural change first. Business profits are determined by competition. Competition is limited by the need to earn a return on assets. So you can think of assets generating, investment generating profit. Mm -hmm or barriers to entry, which is a structural economic position that enables you to earn above normal profits mm -hmm. on things. Can you give an example of a barrier to entry? Oh, sure. Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. Coca-Cola, everybody thinks, is a global brand. In fact, they make all their money in 10 markets, mm -hmm. 10 national markets mm -hmm. around the world. 
Why do they make all their money in those markets? Because in those markets, if you're going to compete with Coca-Cola, you have to set up a distribution network and you have to advertise. Mm -hmm. Those are fixed costs for those markets. Mm -hmm. To support those fixed costs, you probably need to be able to obtain 20, 25% market share. Mm -hmm. Coca-Cola consumers are fanatically brand loyal. I mean, one of the weird things in life is, of course, consumer behavior. Mm -hmm. So you go to a Mexican restaurant, you drink Mexican beer. You go to a Japanese restaurant, you drink Japanese beer. You go to a Chinese restaurant, you drink You're Chinese beer. Drinking Coca-Cola at all those Nobody places. drinks Japanese or mm -hmm. Mexican mm -hmm. or Chinese cola. Mm -hmm. And that's because in cola drinks, you have this extraordinary demand for consistency of taste mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and brand loyalty. Mm -hmm. Toothpaste people are incredibly bland loyal. It means you have extraordinary customer captivity. Mm -hmm. Shampoo people put anything on there. I feel there. like I'm going I'm <laughs> to cause us to digress from the key point, but I just have to ask you, or I could return to this, Bruce, but this conversation is going to meander, and you're going to tell us when you have to go because I'm going to enjoy this so much. There's another factor with Coke, though, right, that consumer behavior may just turn against soft drinks in general. Don't sweat that one. Okay. If they turn against sweet soft drinks for Coke health will make reason, a less sweet. Soft no, they have distribution. right. So that's the first thing because mm -hmm. they have the distribution economies. But the natural thing is artificial sweeteners. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it really is obesity, don't mm -hmm. forget our nanny mayor in New York did not ban 16 ounce, 32 ounce, 48 ounce diet drinks. He banned 16 ounce or mm -hmm. you know these large mm -hmm. sugar drinks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Coke is more dominant in diet drinks. Mm -hmm. So diet coke so is more dominant. So if there's a turn against diet drinks, that could hurt them. That would be some turn. Okay, got it. <laughs> There's a turn against all okay. drinks. They're okay. in trouble. Okay, got, it. got if, it. If people, if drunkenness becomes a great fashion and everybody drinks alcohol-based drinks instead of sweet drinks, they're in trouble. Gotcha. I don't see that coming gotcha. out of a movement towards better health on gotcha. the part of the people. Um, so now getting back, we've okay. got the structural advantage. We got this, these structural issues. So nobody can compete with Coke in those mm -hmm. markets. That means Coke has pricing power. Mm -hmm. That means Coke has efficiencies in distribution and lower cost structures. Mm -hmm. And that is persistent independent of the existence of assets because with that kind of brand loyalty, and it's much more important brand loyalty than brands, mm -hmm. you're never gonna get in against Coke and achieve viable scale, mm -hmm, okay? Mm -hmm. So what you're looking for is markets that you can dominate. Big global markets are hard to dominate. So the old manufacturing and natural resource markets are hard to dominate. Mm -hmm. The PC market, you know, the consumer electronic markets, which are big global markets, mm -hmm. nobody's gonna dominate. Mm -hmm. On the people other think, hand, people have thought Apple would would totally. Lots of lot, lots of luck with that. Apple's yeah. profits are down by half, and you look yeah. at comparable companies like Motorola and uh, Nokia at their best; they got ten percent more. How about the non-device companies in technology like Google? Okay, hold that thought because we'll talk yeah. about Great. it in a second. Great. Because I think that's an important yeah. part of the story. So, in services. And as manufacturing dies and natural resources become less important and we move to services, medical care, education, housing, personal services, travel and uh, tourism, and most entertainment uh, distribution, in services, like Coke, it's local economies of scale. It's all about distribution, local advertising, local service support if you're buying tractors and things like that. Mm -hmm. That means those are local markets and you can dominate local markets. Mm -hmm. You can dominate a geography just like Walmart did in South Central Arkansas. So to be viable, an entrant has to be able to get 25% of that local mm -hmm. market. Mm -hmm. So as services become more pervasive and markets become locally segmented, 
profit opportunities independent of asset investments go up. Mm -hmm. The comparable thing that happens in manufacturing is that as technology develops, you're getting more and more niche products. If you look at the development of the personal computer industry, which is sort of the great technology of our time, I'm mm -hmm. probably a little mm -hmm. older than you. Mm -hmm. We're in the same boat. Okay. <laughs> what you see is that the full service PC makers and the full service chip makers, and I'm thinking the Japanese mm -hmm. in chips, I'm thinking IBM and Apple in personal computers are not the ones who made the money. The ones who made the money are the niche players. Google, only in search. Oracle, only in database management. Microsoft, only in system software, and then they sort of do in product space a Walmart by expanding concentrically, mm. concentrically to uh, word processing and mm -hmm. uh, uh, what are they called? The spreadsheet programs. Mm -hmm. uh, Adobe. Which These is are all of, software, softer side, and, closer well, but, to but, IP. But, right, but then there's Intel. Mm -hmm. What does Intel do? It doesn't try and do all chips. Mm -hmm. doesn't try and do all technology. Mm -hmm. It focuses on dominating a technology mm -hmm. in which there are big fixed costs. Mm -hmm. And so it's a dominatable market, and mm -hmm. people need a big share of that market. Mm -hmm. So as technology develops in product space, and you get more and more tailored niche products, and as there's this move to services and you get more and more geographically segmented markets, mm -hmm. the importance of monopoly profits, if you want to talk about it in that mm -hmm. way, but of market dominance and barriers to entry has been increasing steadily mm -hmm. over time. And that's, that's a major reason uh, that profits what, right, are, driving, right. are being driven up. But when you look at stocks, you can see the, the stocks for which that's true. Mm -hmm. You can look at some manufacturers like Deere that make more money now in services than they do mm -hmm. in making tractors. Mm -hmm. You know that natural resources are not going to be where they are like this forever because supply and productivity improvements and extraction are going to have their effect if they ha as they had throughout human history. Mm -hmm. You know that things like autos, which are big global markets, which are on a current tear, are not going to stay on a current tear. Mm -hmm. And dare I say it, and you're going to get a bunch of angry phone calls for we, this. We like these because we just redirect <laughs> Apple, them to Apple is not going to stay there forever. Mm -hmm. 15 years mm -hmm. from now, Apple... You would not buy Apple stock right now. Well, okay. So what I'm famous mm -hmm. for, and mm -hmm. I get abused for, oh, is okay. the day... I even know this. The day Steve Jobs died, there's a headline in Forbes that says, Greenwald says, don't buy Apple mm -hmm. when it was at $700. Which was maybe another way of saying sell, probably. Oh, of course. And it, would it, isn't it true, I know this is maybe not, this is definitely not the key point you're making right now, but Apple only created value with Steve Jobs at the helm. In, in all non-Jobs periods, in aggregate, that's a, that's okay. a, that's a value-destroying business. Can, I, can we talk about Steve Jobs since mm -hmm. he's departed and at least I can't get a phone call from him? Mm -hmm. Apple creates temporary profits because he is a genius at packaging products. Mm -hmm. But Steve Jobs had a tendency that at Apple Computer, at Next, and ultimately in smartphones and tablets, is going to kill Apple in the long run. And it is this. Steve Jobs was a control freak. He always wanted closed systems. Mm -hmm. And the competition between a closed system, the Apple operating system in the mm -hmm. old days, the America Online. Next, yeah, America Online. The next operating system, system mm -hmm. uh, iOS and smartphones, they all get wiped out by the open systems. Mm -hmm. And the software, therefore, develops on the open system, and it's a huge competitive disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a legacy he's left them at Apple. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that in those kinds of markets they tend to be competitive because people can be viable in global mm -hmm. cell phones at very low scale, mm -hmm. but that the software advantages, which is where the specialty products are, he has consistently pursued strategies that undermine
the long-term future hmm. of Apple. Hmm. You're going to get some phone calls from Apple. We're going to send it right to you. Okay, going back to the market okay, overvalued. Okay, so, okay. So, that, so the first part of this is this underlying trend in the economics of both product businesses as niche businesses due to technology and the move to services. Mm -hmm. But you know which companies to buy and which not to buy. So mm -hmm. there you don't have to make the aggregate judgment. Mm -hmm. I think if you lay that aside, you do see there's outside of those areas, there's a lot of froth in the market. Mm -hmm. And probably a bigger indicator of that than just the 10-year price earnings ratios, because there are these structural differences, mm -hmm. are the VIX. Mm -hmm. They're the perceptions of risk. Because mm -hmm. when people go crazy, they think risk is just not there. Mm -hmm. And the perception of risk at this time is pretty low. Okay, mm -hmm. So that's the structural. There's this some hysteria in the areas without these structural mm -hmm. advantages. Mm -hmm. But I think what you've seen in the last four years is something that is politically and governmentally driven mm -hmm. that I think is going to come as a surprise to everybody when it turns around and it turns out to be very bad for the market. Mm -hmm. And it is this. If you just looked at profit share versus labor share and levels of employment, you would conclude that the Obama administration and the Democrats in the Senate, are the most business-friendly, anti-labor government that has ever been in place. Mm -hmm. What you see- On all sides of the political aisle, people are gasping at that uh, Well, But again, <laughs> yeah. we talked about what's happened to profit share. Profit share that historically had been about eight to 9% mm -hmm. of national income is 14 and a half these days. Mm -hmm. And that's up, I would say, over the Obama administration from something like 12, mm -hmm. which is a very high number anyway. Mm -hmm. In the recession, it only goes down to 10, which is above the historical mm -hmm. average level. Mm -hmm. So profits have definitely done extremely well. Mm -hmm. so, and unfortunately for Pearl, Mr. Obama, he doesn't get the gratitude of business mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. On the labor side, if you do reasonable calculations of unemployment, what you see is that unemployment levels over the course of the recession and a recovery which compared to the rest of the world is quite good in the United States go up properly calculated and by properly calculated I mean accounting for and treating all these people who've left the labor force as a result of jobs not being available really being unemployed mm -hmm. even if in the surveys they say they're no longer looking for work or they're mm -hmm. going to school or mm -hmm. things like that because mm -hmm. participation is very cyclical and mm -hmm. always has been. Mm -hmm. Those unemployment rates are between somewhere between 15, 14, and 17 percent. But the striking thing is they haven't come down. So the official rate has come down from 10.10, say, to 7.6 to 7.4, which is a lot. Those actual rates accounting for people in part-time jobs, and I'm not just talking about the survey numbers, I'm talking about reasonable estimates of how many people are in part-time jobs in good times, and the low participation rates go up, let's say, if we take everything into account, to about 17.4%, and they've come down to like 16.8, maybe. Mm -hmm. So it's that it's, unemployment is very high. It hasn't come down much over these five years that I would say 10% of the labor force mm -hmm. has had an experience mm -hmm. it will never recover mm -hmm. from. But the increase in profit share has also come at the expense of labor. Mm -hmm. That wages are, in general, not keeping up with inflation. Mm -hmm. And there I think it's because what limits profitability is competition. What limits competition is perceptions of risk. You look at this profit environment, which should be one of rapid investment, you know, aggressive investment, Investment by historical standards for this stage in the cycle is extremely low. Mm -hmm. 
should be represented by lots of hiring. I mean, typically unemployment is a lagging indicator because it's late cycle mm -hmm. that hiring occurs. Mm -hmm. Unemployment has stayed high, as we've just talked about. Mm -hmm. They're not hiring anybody. Mm -hmm. But the other striking thing is you look at rates of inflation, and they have not come down. They've been steady between 1% and 2%. Mm -hmm. They sometimes dip below 1%, mm -hmm. which means these guys are not competing on price. Mm -hmm. That they just don't want to take the risk of a price war for gains that materialize in the so future. So the perception that the Obama administration is anti-business is causing businesses to not expand. Right. To not, not hire, compete. To not compete. And that's driving margins up. Uh, exactly. And the market, as we were also saying this before, and the market historically does better with high rates of unemployment than with low rates right, of exactly, exactly. So because so, it's more profitable right. and, and the valuation is So I high. think the bad news is going to come if you have either a business, a truly sort of traditionally business-friendly administration. Once businesses decide to really reinvest vast, in Exactly. And, and, and compete. Right. And that's how you've seen cycles typically emerge, which is businesses first see the downturn. Mm -hmm. They react slowly. Their balance sheets deteriorate. They restore their balance sheets over time. As things get better, they invest more and more. Mm -hmm. Late cycle competition tends to undermine profitability, and that sets you up for the next cycle. Mm. There's no late cycle competition here. Mm. So the profitability looked like it's going to go up until the prayers of uh, Republican businessmen are answered, and you either get a Republican Senate that with a Republican House mm. can limit Obama, or you get a Republican president. It pays to be contrary. Right, and they start to compete. And it has a more negative effect on Is there any reason for you as an investor to ever invest in a company that doesn't have the structural advantages that you just talked about? Uh, it depends on price. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing that mm -hmm. I think benefits you here. Mm -hmm. When you really look carefully at these uh, franchise companies protected by barriers to entry, they've historically been very expensive. Mm -hmm. They are the bluest of the blue chips, the Procter & Gamble's, the Nestle's mm -hmm. on a global basis. Does, does your valuation work, work on those companies or not? Yes, but, mm -hmm. and this is what was bad about the first book, you cannot put a value on these companies because growth is an important part of their value. Mm -hmm. And when you get a growth factor, it's, a difference between, it's one over the difference between a growth rate and a cost of capital. Mm -hmm. Typical cost of capital is 10, typical growth rate is 5. Mm -hmm. It's one over 5, it's like 20 times mm -hmm. cash flow, not mm -hmm. uh, earnings. Mm -hmm. If you're 1% off, you could be a cost of capital of nine and a growth rate of six. Mm -hmm. That's 33 times, mm -hmm. one over 3%. Mm -hmm. Or you could be 11 and four, which is one over 7%, which is 14 times. Mm -hmm. You can't measure those things in value space. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is you can say, what return would I get if I buy, say, a Nestle today? So you look at sustainable earnings, just divide it by the price, that's your earnings return. Mm -hmm. You look at what fraction of that gets distributed, that's your cash return, buybacks and dividends. Look at how effectively they reinvest and how much organic growth they have. That gives you your growth rate of earnings and capital gains. Mm -hmm. And that's a number you can calculate. Mm -hmm. And there's transparency between the assumptions and the return that you're calculating. So which type of company do you prefer to invest in? I, the, I, one I, okay. the, the one with the franchise that looks extremely expensive and you can't really apply your valuation and value methodology to it, or the ones that you can that just don't have the promise of long-term oh, okay. growth? I think, A, we finally developed, and I think Buffett actually does this, although he doesn't tell anybody, mm -hmm. a valuation methodology for these franchise companies, mm -hmm. which is to look at them in return space. Mm -hmm. So you're looking for an 11, 12, 13% return, mm -hmm. when a market return is probably seven or eight. Mm -hmm. The problem you have, which is never gonna go away, is you still have to decide when to sell them, 
And Buffett's solution to that is never to sell them, which mm -hmm. is not always a good idea. Mm -hmm. But I think it'd be a we, good idea for a long right, time right, right. until, until something happens. Right. And you could have sold. So I think that we have a better methodology now for measuring these companies. And I think another trend in the market has created opportunities in these companies that means they're cheaper than they've ever been before. And it is this. On the investing side, over the last 15 years, the big shift has been from the bank trust departments that bought these blue chips because they were so safe mm -hmm. to the alternative asset classes, mm -hmm. which cannot charge two and 20, mm. buying Nestle Procter or buying Coke or buying Procter & Gamble. There has been no countervailing movement of funds into those stocks. So what you've seen over a long period of time, and you do see it in the relative underperformance of the Dow compared, for example, to the Russell. Mm -hmm. What you see is that the money goes out of that part of the market and there's nothing to replace it. So you've seen opportunities in those stocks. Mm. And in some cases, those companies are so conservatively run, and we've learned things about that, that there are not only opportunities to buy them at sort of 9, 10, 11, 12% returns that are, and you can see this, for example, in a Nestle. Mm -hmm. In 2003, they get input price inflation and no general inflation. Worst possible thing that can happen mm -hmm. because the commodities boom. Their margins continue to go straight up because mm -hmm. of the economies of scale and mm -hmm. distribution. Mm -hmm. 2008, 2009, you look at them, they don't suffer mm -hmm. to any perceptible mm -hmm. degree. Mm -hmm. So you've got incredibly safe companies like that trading at dividend yields of around 3.5%, mm -hmm. buying back maybe 1% of the stock a year, so a cash return of 45 growing at at least 6%. Now, people in Nestle don't see it because they're in Swiss francs. Hmm. And all their revenue is growing in dollars, and the Swiss franc has been appreciating at 6% hmm. relative to the dollar until just recently when hmm. they uh, pegged hmm. to the euro. Hmm. So you've got growth rates on top of the 4% you know, cash returns hmm. of maybe 5 6 7%. Hmm. Those are phenomenal returns I for safe assets like that. But it's better than that. Hmm. You look at Nestle in this interest rate environment, they have, say, 14 billion in Swiss francs of operating income. Suppose they were to devote 8 billion of that to buying debt. Well, they probably could issue debt at 2.5%, say, mm. because it's Swiss franc debt. Mm. 8 billion at 2.5% is 320 billion of debt. Mm. And they never default. They're never going to go down mm. from 14 to anything close to 8 billion. Mm -hmm. Their market cap is 200 billion. Mm. They could buy back all their stock, give you another 100 billion, and you'd still have hmm. sort of 40% of and the growing we, part of it. Are we talking to you about it. the largest holding in your portfolio? Uh, yes. Yeah, Nestle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let me throw... For, a, especially for safe investments. For safe investments. Uh, right. Let me throw a couple different companies at you, and you may say, I don't really follow that right. company, or I don't have an opinion of it. What do you think of Diageo? Diageo is, I think, more expensive mm -hmm. uh, than Nestle. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, the growth prospects are more difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. So a, a your, more of your return is coming in growth mm -hmm. for Diageo, so it depends on the future. Mm -hmm. They've had a huge run, you know, these liquor companies in uh, emerging markets. Mm -hmm. I think the death of manufacturing is going to catch up with emerging markets. So, you know, the Japanese were going to dominate the world through manufacturing. It's like trying to dominate the world through agriculture mm -hmm. in the 1930s. Manufacturing mm -hmm. is dying. Productivity growth is 7%. Global demand growth is 3%. Caught up with the Japanese. It'll catch up hmm. with the emerging okay, markets. Okay, what about the duopoly of Visa and MasterCard? What do you think of those? Oh, that is, that is, look, A, they know how to behave. 
Hmm. B, they're cost-conscious in a way that marketing-related companies are not. C, they're very simple models. Hmm. D, it's very hard for the government to screw them hmm. because of the credit card fee of, I don't know, 130 basis points. They may collect 15 hmm. basis points. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, those are terrific. Uh, hmm. And, but again, what's interesting about that is, and here I can't give you a good answer as of today, mm -hmm. is that they vary. There are periods where MasterCard is much cheaper than Visa, mm -hmm. and there are periods where Visa are much cheaper than MasterCard, and you do want to watch and trade in and out of them. Mm -hmm. um, what about Google? We mentioned it a little bit before. Um, uh, I'll, I'm a shareholder of Google. Um, Google's been a recommendation of mine. I also have a little bit of the fears of Microsoft from 13 years ago, and or just in general, the data going back 50 years shows that there is a dynamic of being too big to succeed at a certain point. Okay, and let's. Are we at that point? Uh, with okay, now? first of all, Google is a specialty company. It does information advertising. They dominate that field in a way that I think is harder to displace them because now the information is consistently tailored to you. They have economies of scale in the database, not just from your searches, but from people like you. Mm -hmm. So they're better and better at searches. They're better and better at ad placement, which means that they're better and better at automating ad services for people. So mm -hmm. it's very hard to catch up Tough with to them. disrupt that. So you can't disrupt that, I mm -hmm. think, uh, mm -hmm. as long as they stay on top of what they do mm -hmm. and they do. Also, you can get a feel for the future of Google. X-China and X-Japan, which are the basically the ideographic languages where they don't dominate search. Hmm. Information advertising is probably a $240 billion global business. That's hmm. the classifieds, the business directories, the, uh, you know, a lot, some direct mail and so hmm. on, where when you're ready to buy, you go to these uh, hmm. the yellow pages. Mm -hmm. So that's a $240 billion global business today, growing slightly faster as it has hmm. for the last 40 years than world GDP. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they ought to own 70% of that business. 70% of 240 billion is what? 150, 160, 170 billion, yeah. say. If they were a decently run company and not sort of the toy of uh, Brin and Page, <laughs> they would have at least 60% operating margins because nobody's going to come close to them in mm -hmm. the scale of R&D that they can mm -hmm. do at that level. So take 60% of $170 billion. You're talking about global earnings. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, 70%, let me, let me go back. Mm -hmm. So it's 70% of a hundred, no, it's, it's $170 billion mm -hmm. times the margins of 60%. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about $100 billion. Mm -hmm. Taxes of 30%, you're talking about $70 billion a year. Mm -hmm. You know, it's growing, say, at 6% a year. Mm -hmm. You want a 10% overall return, so you'll pay 25 times, say conservatively, 20 times those mm -hmm. earnings. Mm -hmm. So you got 70 billion times 25 is $1.4 mm -hmm. so Now, it's never going to happen because they're not going to manage the company that because, And that's the reason, but, is not, is because they're, they're, they're going into multiple different directions, right. and you think that that could be damaging to them. What about um, the Justice Department or somebody, what about the European Commission coming in and saying, well, you know, the way you're running this, there's no one that can compete. We'd like some of our European... But, right, but this is a natural monopoly. Listen, mm. they've been trying to kill Microsoft for years. Mm. But it's been a terrible How investment, well, uh, though, for the last... No, it's been a terrible investment at the end of the tech boom. Okay, got it. 
Yeah. By the time it's down to what I, I think, what it got down to fifteen, fourteen, thirteen dollars a share. Yeah, yeah mid-teens. Yeah. And here we are at thirty-five. Right. It's yeah. a good investment since then. Now, don't forget the craziness of the valuation was not, not a, has never been where Google is. Got it. So, Steve uh, Ballmer, in your opinion, is underrated. No, Steve Ballmer is a moron too. But <laughs> these are well, fabulous. he created a lot of value from, <laughs> no, from the tech, no, from no, the no, bottom no, of the no, tech no. boom. <laughs> My, you've got to understand, Google will create value because of its dominant position, just like Microsoft creates value from its dominant mm -hmm. position. And this is another Buffettism. You want companies that can do well if they're run by idiots, because sooner or later, what about an Facebook? idiot is going to run them. I think Facebook is a bipolar stock. Mm -hmm. And it's bipolar in actually two ways, so it's very hard to know what to invest in. So mm -hmm. we know that on the web, information advertising is an incredibly powerful mm -hmm. force. That's why Google does so well. It is less clear that image or brand advertising works that well mm -hmm. on the web. And what you're talking about with Facebook is image or brand advertising. Mm -hmm. Nobody is going to use Facebook when they want to buy a camera, they want to find the cheapest price, they want to find Right. Uh, the, the, you know, the full range of options. That they're mm -hmm. going to go to Google for that. Mm -hmm. So the first question with I Facebook. maybe video could work in the, the proliferation of video on the internet could play into Facebook's favor. It could, but again, we don't, so far there has been no consistent message about brand advertising working. Mm -hmm. Remember General Motors tried to advertise on Facebook and mm -hmm. ultimately pulled their ads mm -hmm. because they aren't working. And I don't think the, I don't think the, Evidence is conclusive on this mm -hmm, point. Mm -hmm. So there's a chance it could I think work. Facebook's ads could work to the extent that they cause you to begin using a solution that the advertiser is using, like right out of the gate. Tom, For example, what you think doesn't app. count. Okay? <laughs> We're going to develop history on this, and it's either going to make you a visionary genius, which you've well, been in yeah. your life, or you're going to look like a motley fool. Hey, we, we don't do those know. Words positively here. Um, okay, so. Um, so well, we don't know on Facebook yep. whether the image advertising is going to work. but. I I would say it's at least a 50% chance it's not going to work. Okay. That is our show for today. Hope you enjoyed the first part of our two-part interview. Be sure to come back tomorrow to catch the rest of it. I'm David Hansen. Fool on. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.